0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author and clinical architect of the Claudia Black Center for Young Adults, uh, Claudia Black, PhD. She's the author of It Will Never Happen to Me Growing Up with Addiction as Youngsters, Adolescents, and Adults. I think this is the third publication of this book. Not sure. But anyway, very third edition, I should say. Children of addictive families do not often receive the help they need. After all, they usually rely on coping mechanisms that will allow them to appease others, fly under the radar, or redirect attention. But as Dr. Claudia Black asserts, if these abusive relationships and mental health disorders, uh, they become vulnerable to addictions. Um, Since the 1970s, Dr. Black's work has encompass the impact of addiction on young and adult children her writings and teachings have become a standard in the field of addictions she is one of the original founders and serves on the advisory board for the national association of children of alcoholics and the advisory council of the aluna foundation and its development of camp mariposa a camp for children impacted by addiction welcome to the show claudia nice to have you here Thank you, Catherine.
1: I always appreciate the opportunity to talk about this very subject.
0: And this very subject seems to go on and on and on. I think what I said I I think is accurate. This is the third edition of the book. uh, We're talking about addictions. Uh, Where are we? I mean, this book is, is, is so important because are we actually getting anywhere with helping to solve some of these issues to help to mitigate people's addictions? I'm thinking about, obviously, the opioid addiction. Let's, you know, yeah. start from the beginning. Well, the answer is is mm-hmm. really yes
1: and no. You know, I wrote this book many years ago, and when I wrote it at that time, we never, you didn't even use the word children of addiction, and um, we didn't, talk about the trauma that took place in addictive family systems. And so when I first wrote it, you know, I talked about the physical abuse that's often there, the neglect that's often there, the sexual abuse that's often there. Um, and never those words had never been spoken. They weren't talking about them in media, we weren't talking about them on TV. Um, and then I talked about the fact that kids have an ability, as you said in the introduction, to fly under the radar with coping mechanisms that really appease other people. So they don't even often get seen as children in need, even when we see the devastation that could be going on in their family system. And after all of these years, today, you hear the language out there, Um, but while we hear the language and we hear it in media and we hear it in TV shows and I see it in fiction books even, that addiction continues to permeate family systems it's probably the number one dysfunction within a family when there is dysfunction in the context of the family and the impact has not changed we have we continue to have resources for the addicted person but we have so fewer resources for the child and so For me, I've always been a voice for this population. I continue to feel very passionate about it. And, you know, we're talking about children, and we're also talking about what I call adult children of addiction, because what happens as a child, we typically carry with us into our adult life, patting ourselves on the back for thinking we've done so well in spite of, and then we carry on a legacy that hurts every aspect of our life.
0: Well, let's take back and talk about some of those roles that these children adopt, as you're talking about, uh, because there are some very specific kinds of roles that children do cling to. And, uh, for instance, the responsible child. What does that mean when they come? What does the responsible child do?
1: First of all, let me say that in all families – kids tend to take on various kinds of roles. What is significant about a family where there is addiction and even other types of trauma is that they adhere to these roles extremely rigidly and they adhere to these roles based on fear and shame. And so with every one of these roles, you're going to see some strengths and that's why they have the ability to so-called look good. But what we don't see is what they're not learning. So one of those roles is that hero, responsible child. I become the parent to myself. I become the parent to my other siblings in the home, and sometimes I even become the parent to my uh, to my parents. Um, I'm the one who takes charge, and I make sure that, uh, the, um, you know, we all have matching clothes when we go to school. I make sure that we all have a smile on our face when we sit down at the table. Now, in addition to that hero responsible role, you get other roles. You get the placator, I call that person the household social worker. And that's the person who takes away the emotional pain. Dad does something to embarrass you. I will, I will dance on this rooftop till you're no longer embarrassed. Mom does something to disappoint you. I will do whatever it is that's necessary. Then you often have the child who the best way, and this is what's important about the roles, I take on these roles because they bring me a sense of stability in a very chaotic, unpredictable family. They bring me a sense of emotional survivorship. So another one of those roles could be becoming invisible. I refer to this child as the adjuster or the lost child. I move into the woodwork. I try not to draw any attention to myself. That's the best way for me to protect myself in this family. And then you might have the comic, um, the person who attempts to provide some relief for the pain with a great sense of humor. So as I talk about some of this, you can actually see various strengths. But we also have very angry kids sometimes. There are about 20% of kids in these kinds of homes that are clearly angry, and they get seen for their anger, but they don't get seen as a child who's really acting out the dysfunction that's going on in their life. And as I said, Irrespective of what these strengths can be and the fact that it this child actually well in the moment, we need to pay attention to uh, what they're not learning. Some children, they're not learning um, conflict resolution. They're not learning healthy problem solving. Some, While some initiate, some are learning not to initiate. While some learn how to take control, they don't know how to work with other people in a, a team capacity. Uh, they're many times learning high tolerance for inappropriate behavior and a part of working with people of any age be it a 7 year old or a 50 year old who's had this experience we need to address the core beliefs that they've taken on because as i said these roles are fueled by fear and shame when i talk about core beliefs i'm talking about shame based core beliefs
0: so these behaviors or these 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 uh, descriptions of how these uh, children do react I think I want to emphasize, as you said, there's a rigidity to this kind of behavior. Um, and that's important, I guess, to be able to recognize uh, one of the other things is, and they're defeating behaviors. They're defeating behaviors because of that because they are rigid. They also sometimes fit in. I'm thinking about, you know, you talk about um, each the child feels, I guess, that they're that they're creating some stability in their family. Um, you know, the child who is the responsible child fits into that. Uh, I guess the family dynamic, right? The parent, you know, it feels good. There is somebody there who is creating this. They, they, this, this stability within the family. Or other siblings may feel that way. So it perpetuates the behavior yes. as well.
1: Yes. Very, you know, it's very systemic, and uh, you know, it gives this family the sense that uh, you know we're not falling apart here. And that I am safe. And this is what children need more than anything. They need to know that they are safe. They need to know that they are of value as well. And they take on by taking on these roles, it gives them a greater sense of security in the context of this. But at the same time, they're internalizing beliefs that say, who I am is not okay. I am not a value. You can't trust other people. Other people will take advantage of you. Um, I'm inadequate. There must be something wrong with me. And that is ultimately what gets acted out um, in time. Uh, You know, we get these responsible kids, these placating kids, all these kids have an ability to look good. They will move into their adult lives. And this is when we tend to see the depression show itself, the anxiety, They have a great difficulty uh, choosing healthy partners in which to be in relationships with. So you see a lot of difficulty in relationships. And as you really alluded to when you first began there in the introduction, they are more likely to become addicted to be it a substance and or behavior than any other identifiable group of people. Now, And if addiction, in fact, were an issue of willpower and self-control, they would be the least likely. But what happens is they've got this big hole, this big hole, irrespective of how good they looked, um, that's shame-based, and uh, alcohol, drugs, or it could be a certain behavior, fill that hole. I had a, a young man say to me, I was 11 when I took my first drink. I hated the taste, but I felt the glow. I had a hole in my stomach that was so big, only alcohol and drugs would fill it up. And that's what alcohol and other drugs do for these kids in spite of the fact that they say it's never going to happen to me. I'm never going to end up like my mom. I'm never going to end up like my dad. And unfortunately, they end up following more of a script than living a life of choice. Now, sometimes it's a different drug of choice. You know, I don't drink alcohol because my dad was an alcoholic, but I end up addicted to cannabis or I end up addicted to gaming or I end up addicted to heroin heroin. Um, So it may not be the exact same drug of choice, but uh, things that they can become addicted to, anesthetize, medicate, and uh, take away that pain, at least temporarily.
0: And you're talking about these personal stories, can you talk about some, I mean, some have a good outcome, I assume, and some don't. Um, Talk to us about, yeah. There's always
1: differences. You know, children um, can be very resilient, but there's reasons that they are resilient. And... uh, The reasons have a lot to do with one, probably the two things that make the biggest difference for kids, even if they're in troubled families, is if they can develop a relationship with a caring adult outside of that disrupted family system. Um, that will make a significant difference in their life. And that caring relationship actually could be the coach at school. It could be um, a teacher in the school setting. I, I often use schools because that's where kids spend the greatest amount of their time. It could be somebody within their neighborhood. You know, it could be it could be the car mechanic three blocks down the road, and you've got a little 11-year-old um, who's wandering be- around outside because he doesn't want to be home due to what it is that's happening, and he starts to hang out at the car mechanic's place. And he does that day after day, week after week, pretty soon months go by, years go by, and they don't even talk about what's going on at home. But the mechanic develops a relationship with this kid that says, you know, I like you, kid, and um, you're important, and uh, I appreciate you. I mean, even that kind of relationship can make a difference. And the other thing that people can do even in the context of dysfunction Um, any healthy rituals that can become a part of a child's life um, and healthy rituals around dinner time, uh, around bedtime. And sometimes the healthy ritual is in addictive homes, kids just sort of separate in the evening and just sort of end up in bed on their own. It could be making sure that you acknowledge your child before they go to bed at night. And, you know, we have a lot of people where we have a parent in the family trying to do the best they can. So anything that parent can do, to continue some kind of healthy structure and healthy ritual, and let those children be children,
0: and age appropriate is going to be important, yeah, and that's a huge responsibility for the other partner, isn't it, to be oh, able to do that in the context, yeah, of trying to also maintain a really a some kind of a relationship with the I'm saying abusive uh, parent. Um, so as it I mean, you give an example what, of, yeah, go ahead,
1: I think what's really important is, you're not going to be able to do this by yourself. And if you're in a partner relationship with somebody you know, who is addictive, it's really important that you get some outside support by people who also have been dealing with this. And you can find that a lot in self-help groups. And even with the pandemic, you can find that on Zoom. Um, Al-Anon or what we call Naranon, if it's a, another drug addiction is a great uh, support group for family members and it may be a counselor and even that can happen today um, through Zoom and on the internet
0: Yeah, um, but Claudia please, let me stop I mean, you just, there because I always like to bring this in the context of let's say this past year I did this with my first guest I mean it would seem to me all of what you've been talking about would be exacerbated if you are stuck in the house to, for a year <laughs> Um what do you do about that? I mean, that seems to me almost an impossible situation. So let's talk about that.
1: Yeah, mental health issues and addiction issues are skyrocketing as a result. And then the impact on family members are skyrocketing. And, you know, I think important messages that a parent can give a child is that one, you know, what can the child do to create safety in their own home? Where can they go that's safe for them in the house when they're scared? Where can they go in the house that is safe for them in a healthy way when they are sad. Um, When they are angry, what can they do so that they don't lash out their anger in some kind of healthy way? So we need to, as we, if we can, as that other parent, try and give children those messages that can they somehow disengage from being central to what the chaos is in the family in a way that protects them. You know, where can they go in that house that's more safe, what can they do when they're in that safe place? Does it help them to turn on music? Does it help them um, to be doing some drawing? You know, one of the things we recognize is that they're living a life with a lot of trauma, and from a clinical perspective, they get what we call very emotionally dysregulated. And um, it's very important that they learn how to sort of ground themselves so that they are not—they don't become impulsive and emotionally reactive—and grounding. Um, anything you can do with arts and crafts um, is very grounding for kids. Anything you can do with song is very grounding. Dance is very uh, grounding. Any kind of, um, if they can get outside of the home, just walking. Um, any uh, Our pets can be very grounding. Uh, so we certainly need, you know, if it's at all possible um, uh, for these kids to get those kinds of messages. That, because you can't escape the home. So what can I do in the context of home versus to try and get in there and control things or take care of everybody else's feelings? And um, One of the most important messages the other parent can give those children is, I'm responsible for what I do with your mother or your father. You're not responsible. I'm the adult in this house. Whatever we can do to help them uh, not become our peer and not to become enmeshed with attempting to try and handle this situation.
0: What about when you have a, a, a partnership where one is the enabler and the other one is the person who's addicted, and then you are stuck in this situation? Uh, what happens then?
1: I think, and then the, the impact on kids is even more so. And you know, I work with a lot of kids who are as angry, if not angrier, with the enabling parent as the, they are the addicted parent. Um, you know, why did, uh, you know, why is she or he doing this? Why are they ignoring this? And, uh, you know, I think so for kids, one, that's modeled, so oftentimes that perpetuates them to become enablers themselves. You know, we talk about addicts having a denial system where they minimize and rationalize their behavior. Well, family members do too, and that's where you see a lot of that in enablers. Um, we minimize, we rationalize. As a child said to me many years ago, in our family, we just pretend things are different than how they really are. And when we do that, we're going to enable somebody else. Well, not only does the addict do that around their addiction, but spouses and partners do. And then we model that for our children. And then, in the beginning, it's a a defense. It's a natural response when there's addiction in the home. But when we practice it so much, it becomes a skill. And then I take that with me into my adult life, and I minimize, I discount, I rationalize, I create a fantasy about the reality. And there's strong implications for that as I parent, as I'm in relationships, um, in my work. Um, And that's sort of an example of how I take this legacy with me. But when you say, what about, what about those kids when we also have an enabling parent? um, Actually, the devastation is just even more so for those kids.
0: let's talk about the because I mentioned it in the beginning in the introduction the the, uh, development of Camp Mariposa which is that camp for children who are impacted by addiction um
1: thank you for bringing that up because I wanted to acknowledge both Camp Mariposa, part of the Aluna Foundation, and I also want to acknowledge the National Association for Children of Addiction in terms of resources. And Camp Mariposa is something that I was a part of helping to develop uh, actually several years ago now, probably 12 years ago now. And it is, we have 16 camps all across the country. And to be very honest, I'm not sure if we have one. I know we have one in Philadelphia. I know we have two or three in the West Virginia, Kentucky area. We've been trying to create new ones down in those that are hardest hit with the opiates um, epidemic. Um, we have them in San Diego, all across the country. Um, and... A camp is for children who are 9 to 12 years of age. It does not cost that child uh, or the family anything uh, for them to go. And this is a camp that occurs six times a year because what we realize is these kids stay in an ongoing, usually chaotic, family system. It does so happen that the majority of these kids... um, have come out of foster care, have had parents in prison, do not necessarily have family members who are in any kind of recovery. So they are the ones least likely to have had a resource available to them. Uh, Since that camp has been developed, we're developing a peer relationship program as they graduate out. Um, Many of them are coming back as mentors to the younger kids. And again, to find out about this and even find out for listeners who would like to see something like this in your own community area, go to the Luna Network uh, Foundation. They have a Camp Erin for children where there is grief, uh, where they've lost somebody in the family. That's a one-time only five-day experience. And then we have um, multiple camps for young kids where there is substance use disorders in their families. You know, what's happening for so many of these kids, and particularly kids, who are really marginalized in the kind of way I just described, is we've actually even needed to build in, uh, it's very trauma-informed because these kids are very emotionally reactive, but we've had to build in even a suicide prevention component um, because of the despair they often feel. But I also wanted to mention the National Association for Children of Alcoholics in terms of it being an advocacy organization for these children, and that's NACOA.org, dot org, And between those two, you're going to be able to uh, uh, garner uh, a product that can be available in churches, in schools, and can be helpful directly to family members.
0: Well, your work is... Uh, <laughs> 24-7, it seems to me. I mean, all of these, uh, I mean, these are fantastic organizations. Um, you know, the Camp Mariposa, when you say six times a year, what, is summertime, I mean, during the school year, how does that work? It's during the school year.
1: And I have to tell you, I am so proud of Camp Mariposa Or the fact that you can't do this during the pandemic. And all of these camps across the country, I'm so proud of so many people, um, all of these camps around the country, they're finding ways to still be a part of these children's lives. It might be on the Internet or it might be delivering things to wherever these children are living to remind them that there are people who care, um, to give them activities, to help them uh, stay, you know, But take care of themselves in the context of what it is that's going on. Um, But typically, these are camps that take place in a camp setting. Um, I think there's only been one that wasn't in a camp setting, but truly in an outdoor camp setting where um, the modality of play is the way in which um, they learn and also they have a chance to bond with other kids. I think the comment you hear the most from these kids is, I really thought I was alone. I didn't think anybody else felt the way I felt. You know, and that was true 40 years ago when I started my work, and it is still true today for these young children. And uh, through the use of play, they learn, uh, one of the most important things they learn in the course of that weekend is that they are not at fault. They have not caused the problems in, in their family life, and that their job really is to do the best they can to take care of themselves. And they often do that by knowing how to ask for help they try and teach them uh, the better problem solving they also try and teach them how to calm themselves down when they get really scared and oftentimes are more apt to physically lash out and uh and the kids have a wonderful time i mean they play and uh, um All of this is done in the context of play, learning these kinds of things. They do role plays. They do a lot of artwork. Um, Sometimes they do uh, little rope challenge courses. And uh, and as I said, even in the pandemic, uh, these camps have managed to provide resources to these kids.
0: And some of these kids now, you say you've been doing this for 12 years, are adults now, right? I'm assuming, at least the ones who started out in the beginning. Yeah, so you must connect with them. Yeah.
1: And many of them. Yes, yes. I, I recently did um, a radio show, and uh, a 22-year-old came back and talked. Um, and she stayed involved until she was 16 years old. She became a peer mentor to the younger groups. And uh, uh, it just it becomes life-changing for them. And I always say, you know, never underestimate the role you play in a child's life. And sometimes it's just one person. It's not usually just one experience. It might have to be a repeated experience like cat Mariposa is, but it can be just one person. And, you know, people so often said, well, I don't know what my role is with this child, you know, they live in my neighborhood, and what can I possibly say, or I see this child at church, and I know what's going on, but, and I'm not concerned about people being over-involved, I'm much more concerned about people being under-involved.
0: I think that's well said because I think people do fear, you know, maybe I become too connected to this child and I shouldn't be doing it. And we, you know, all of those kinds of rationalizations, I guess, is what you're saying. couple minutes left. You have mentioned a couple websites, but um, any other websites? We Well, for the book, we want to, um, it will never happen to me growing up with addiction as youngsters, adolescents, and adults. And it's Dr. Claudia Black. Um, any other websites you want to tell us about that we can you can direct yeah. us to? I'm yeah. Mention
1: my own website, it's com, and you can become familiar with my other work, and as well as um, all my, I have many, I have actually 15 books all about this very issue. Central Recovery Press is the publisher. You can access, there's a Claudia Black library at com. Um, You can access the book through Amazon as well. And I want to say for people who've had the original book, you're going to love this third edition. It's much more comprehensive because some years have passed and there's much more that can be said. I think the the book that... um, this book is really one of the first books that people read, and it gives them a language in which to be able to talk about their experience. It gives them a framework in which to understand what it is that has happened to them. And in that process, it's validating and it's empowering. And I think it will give people a sense of direction, both right.
0: for uh, no, the concerned I to, person and the. I hate the to cut adult. you off, but we have uh, just, they're going to cut us off in 20 seconds. So, But it, Dr. Claudia Black, thanks so much for being on the show today i mean there's so much information and you really are the book is inspiring but so are you so thank you
1: <laughs> thank you thank you katherine i appreciate the opportunity to talk about this the kids need us all the young and the yep. adult thank you they
0: do i'm Catherine zox your social worker with the microphone and you've been listening to the katherine zox show